Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Kale Guthrie Weissman, the editor in chief here at Modern Retail, and I'm joined today with Aaron Sinandris, the co founder and CEO of Untuck It. I'm excited to go into how the business has changed over the last year and also just the overall apparel world. There's a, there's a lot we're going to dive into, but hey, Aaron, thanks for joining. Kale, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, there's a lot that I want to dive into, but one of the big themes I want to hit on is Untucket is known predominantly because you have a lot of stores. Am I correct in that? Well, I, I would say it, it is correct. We do have a lot of stores. Um, we actually did start as a e-com only. So we yeah. were predominantly e-com only till about, say, five years ago where we started this kind of rapid retail expansion. Yeah, and I think that you are often looked towards in the in the e-com DTC space as a, a perfect example or a really important example of starting e-com only and then doing the your own your own store strategy of sort of doing this really ambitious and it's uh it's been it's been really fun to sort of watch it over the last few years. And so can you just talk about sort of what happened when the pandemic hit and sort of how did that impact this, you know, the the 90 something stores that you had? Wow. Uh, so so, yeah, it, it feels like five years ago, Kale, um, but it was only 10 months ago. So <laughs> the the pandemic really what we started to to feel um, was probably the beginning of February. Right. So the first concerns that we had around the, the virus were really supply chain related um, would we get our product out of China before factories had to start shutting down? And, and those were kind of the predominant concerns. I think for a lot of um, apparel uh, retailers uh, back at the beginning of February, kind of end of, of January, as we looked to Europe and we started to see that, look, it's, it's very likely that this virus was going to hit our shores. Then the, it was just questions of uncertainty, right? And nobody likes uncertainty and the unknown. And so in March, when when people started talking about shelter in place rules coming into place, um, it was still a very big unknown. Uh, the biggest unknown, candidly, was, look, when you shut stores down, do all your customers simply shift to online? Mm-hmm. And for a lot of retailers, that's what they saw, especially if you had the, the, the benefit of being in athleisure, right? Athleisure has its, its day in the sun. And everyone needs workout clothes. They can't get them in the store. So naturally, they go online. See, Untucket sits in a slightly different place for, for an apparel retailer. We sit very squarely in the kind of dress for event occasion space. And so that could be going to dinner. That could be movies, travel, work, after work. Um, that's where we play really well. And what we saw right when we shut our stores down is so did all of those events and all of those occasions. So they, they came to kind of a screeching halt. And so, you know, the first thing that kind of crosses your mind is, well, look, we, we've got to, obviously we've got to um, close the shutters and, and prep for, for what we don't know, um, which is how long this virus is going to be around. And again, back in, in March and, and early April, the predominant thinking was V-shape recovery by Q4, it's gone. And this will be like, you know, the the roaring 20s again coming out of the 1918 pandemic. Everyone's out and and we'll make up any lost ground that, that we may have had in, in that Q2. So what we learned, obviously, was that that wasn't the case. And we learned that it was, it's as a country, it's been very difficult to manage or maintain or contain 
um, the virus. And so stores were closed. Our stores were closed for two full months. The biggest challenge there, candidly, was how do we retain our store employees when we, we are forced to, to furlough? Um, and that was probably the single most agonizing decision I think I've had to make ever in my career. And I'm pretty old, right? I've been, been working now for 20 plus years. Um, it was really difficult. It, it was the absolute only thing that we could do. And it was the right thing to do. But it was like, still, this is these are people's lives. These are people that I know really well, people that I consider my friends in, in the stores. Um, and so having to make that decision, look, we're going to have to furlough. We can pay you guys for a couple of weeks, but then, you know, we, we have to go on furlough. This was just as the first kind of CARES Act was, was being enacted. So fortunately, and this is a lowercase F on that, right? So there's nothing good that ever came out of that. But fortunately, there were kind of unemployment enhancements that really did help kind of soften the blow of, of having to furlough again in the most uncertain time that I think pretty much anyone who's alive today um, has gone through. And so, so that was, that was pretty traumatic. Um, but I'll tell you, it was, it was, I did not get any hate mail. Um, I got the opposite. I got a lot of people that kind of appreciated the, the agonizing um, kind of condition with which that decision was made. Um, and support from, from the retail team. And it was all about, look, when, when, if, and when this thing comes back, you know, let us, let us rip and, and we're right back at it. And so then, then the question was always, well, we've got 87 stores that shut down literally overnight, right? I remember March 16th, the Monday is when the, the email went out that we're not opening stores, um, on Tuesday. Um, it was, okay, how do we bring people back? Can we possibly bring as many people back? There's all the operational questions that you have around stores, because if you've ever been in, in an Untucket store before, it is very service oriented. So we do have a decent number of staff. We're not like Apple, but we're not that far away, right? You got seven people with iPads waiting to help. And so, you know, thinking through one, when we open stores again, what do we do with the inventory? When we open stores again, how many people are going to come? That was the biggest, you know, question mark. And again, <laughs> excuse me, everyone was looking to China at the time. And in China, I remember when stores opened, it was like 40% comping, then 60% comping. Then it was like 75% comping. So there was a lot of optimism that that would be what we felt or what we saw in the U.S. Um, again, I think it just wasn't for, for most of us. It wasn't. If again, if you were in athleisure, that might have been what you experienced, but for anybody in in our kind of space, and again, we play really well in casual and, and ca comfort casual and polish casual. But and I'll put myself in this: who's wearing button down shirts um, right now? Right, mm -hmm. I'm I'm the CEO, and I've worn a button down shirt maybe five times, six times since February. So so that was the um, just continues to be right. It, it will end. We know it'll end. We know that. As people come out of the, the the pandemic, going out to dinner, doing all these things is going to be something that they just can't wait to do. But yeah, you know, we haven't gotten there yet. So there's a lot to unpack there, and so there are two yes, questions. Yes, I know. That I, have. I have to breathe. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you some breathing time. So there are two yeah. questions that I have, just because I'm fascinated. Is not the right word, but I'm I'm really interested because you talked about furloughing retail staff, and that's always 
the most difficult decision that CEOs have to make. And so how did you approach that specifically as a leader? Was that about transparency? Was, you know, when you were sort of in those moments, walk me through what you did, because when you, the moment your company gets to a certain size and you have these stores, you, it's it's different than just being, you know, in one specific place where you have a corporate team and that's it. You have so many different people who are helping the, have these other these other satellite places. So how did you approach that? Yeah, look, I think transparency and, and candor and empathy, you know, mean a lot um, when you're going through something like we, we went through and frankly, for, for a lot of us are, are continuing to kind of work through. So being candid about why and why the decisions get made, what the impact is on the organization, the fact that we don't have all the answers, but we'll we'll keep in kind of close contact Having, you know, we try to have at least a couple of times a month these uh, kind of all hands on staff meetings where, look, I'll go through all of the the um, the financials of the company, right? What we're doing, how we're working with our lenders, how we're looking at, at equity, what the business is doing, um, what we need to be doing, the, the the good and the bad and the ugly, right? It's it's not about showing a, a strong fit. You have to obviously you have to somewhat be show a a strong kind of face. But at the same time, you can't say everything's fine, everything's okay, because most of the the folks that are in the organization, if you're on the retail side, you know it's not, right? Because you you we are very much metric driven. And so we've kind of ingrained that in our store associates. They know what traffic was last year, they know what sales were last year, they know what they are this year, and they know that there's a, a fairly large gap between the two. So it's not like you can you can just smile and say everything's going to be okay. It's about being as as honest and as candid as you can. But you need answers, right? You definitely need to have have answers when when questions are asked. Um, and that answer can be we don't know yet. Um, but as long as you are making, and I think, and, and we have, you're making the right decisions, taking the right steps to ensure that you've got a, a long-term brand and long-term kind of sustainability of the brand, then the people that work for, for that brand feel comfortable, right? They feel comfortable that somebody's, you know, looking after the, the herd, so to speak, and, and is going to take care of the company, is not going to let, you know, bad decision-making get in the way of, uh, of kind of growing out of this. And so talk to me about once you were beginning to reopen, what were the changes that were in play for one on the the brand side uh did you did you think about going over to athleisure how did you sort of approach the fact that your core and i i didn't i didn't say this at the beginning of the show because i feel like i've known untuck it for years but for those who don't know what untuck it is uh it's it, why don't you give it just a brief description of the of your core product yeah so so our core product is the button down shirt yeah. and it's you know at its core meant to be worn untucked, right? So there was there was a problem. This is going back when, when Chris and I first started this in 2011, where if you wanted to wear your shirt untucked, it was very difficult to find a shirt that actually looked good untucked because <laughs> shirts just weren't designed that way. They were all designed to be hidden through in your pants and, and tucked in. So we kind of changed that. And and candidly, we, we, were, we, were, we changed at the perfect time. I don't think any of us knew it, but there has been this massive shift to the casual. And it's mm-hmm. been, you know, pandemic has given us three giant strides, you know, even further. Um, and it was this shift to the to the casual that's that's really put a lot of guys in a position where they they want to to look casual, feel casual, feel comfortable 
and they're looking at their wardrobe and they're saying, I just don't think tucking my shirt in gets me there. And, and here we are with this message of, you know, inclusivity, this message of kind of simplicity and, and functionality, shirts designed to be worn untucked. So, so we actually, we, we lucked out in, in a way that we just hit that, that wave, you know, boom, right at the sweet spot. Um, but in terms of when stores opened, just to answer your, your question. So when stores opened, the, prior to stores opening, first of all, we did have the question, look, do we want to shift all of our production and, and reject all the product that was coming in and go to joggers and, and, mm-hmm. you know, more Henleys and tees. And the decision was no, no massive overhaul of our brand ethos was kind of necessary. The bigger thing that we need to make sure is we, we need patience, right? We need to make sure that we all recognize that we're going to come out of this and that when we do, you know, there's only going to be one brand. This is our obviously our view of this, right? There's, there's <laughs> only one brand that's really going to serve the, the casual observer now, the one who wants to, to go to work and not wear a sports coat and, and, and tie and even tuck their shirts in anymore. And it's this kind of polished casual space that we live in. And so we need to be patient. We know we're going to emerge. We know we're going to be more relevant than we were prior to the pandemic. And so it was simply saying, look, let's, let's do what we can to change the, the mix of product that's available. Let's do what we can to change maybe the marketing of product, right? We never really heavily marketed our non-core you know, button-down shirt. It, they, were in, they were in catalogs, but they're really not in our, our digital ads. We really don't talk about them in our TV ads. And so it was shifting the messaging that we were giving, but it was still kind of all within that polished casual. Um, and then when stores opened, you know, making sure that we didn't have, you know, predominantly buttoned down shirts, because again, there's just not a lot of occasions in the last 10 months where people were really thinking, oh, you know, I need to put a button down shirt on to, you know, sit on the couch or, or for Zoom. And even for Zoom, the funny thing is, you know, first, Two weeks of Zoom, everyone showered, you know, <laughs> clean shaven, wearing button down shirts. And, and by week three, you know, two thirds of the Zoom videos not even on, you know, people that are on have, have hats on like myself, you know, not shaving anymore, tank tops. I mean, it, it just went, it got super casual really quickly. So did you find, I, one of the things I find so uh, I guess impressive and fascinating about Untuck It is that you have a core audience there. I know people who for years have said like, they're my shirts, you know, they fit me so well. And Love that's, yeah. and that's what, what you guys have been known for is I feel like a very captivated audience of specifically men of a certain age. Uh, when you were focusing more on these sort of other products, was it about targeting that those people or were you sort of expanding the lens more to try and get other people who might be interested in these, these other pieces of apparel that they didn't know that you had? Yeah, it's a little bit of both, right? It, it, you have obviously you've got far more um, permission to market non what I'll call non button down products to existing customers, right? They trust you enough, they purchase your product, and, and you're right. We do have this this strange connection with our customer where we're we're more than just a brand. There's an emotional connection, you know, just the whole untucked shirt thing. That whole conversation. It's probably the one topic in men's fashion that most men have an opinion on, right? When you get into, you know, single pleat, double pleat, no pleat, like, I don't know. But when you get into, <laughs> do you, should you wear your shirts untucked? You know, people tend to have, have a pretty strong opinion. And so selling those people that, that have bought into our brand, that have experienced kind of the quality of shirt, getting a Henley or a tee or, you know, shorts and ultimately did come out with a jogger, 
Um, getting that in front of them, I think we we did do, um, and we saw a lot of what we call multi-category purchasers now. And so, if you think about building out a wardrobe, that's every apparel's you know retailer's dream is to have ninety percent of their customers' wardrobe, right? We had for most of our customers, we pretty much had a hundred percent of their button-down shirt category. Um, and then it was okay. Well, you know, we play really strongly in tees, Henleys, you know, sweaters, you know, things that that are one, two, maybe three, you know, standard deviations away from from the core product. And so, getting that out is important. Um, but at the same time, new customers for a growth company like ours, right? New customer acquisition is absolutely critical. And so, getting those new customers to buy non-button-down shirts was something we had to focus on. On the one hand, there should be, it should cost less because they spend less. And so there's a correlation, right, between if you're trying to, customer acquisition costs of having someone buy a couch, you know, first having someone buy a t-shirt are, are very, very different. And so we did expect to see customer acquisition costs come down, which it did. Um, and we did expect to see, you know, far more people entering the brand through a product category other than the button-down shirt, again, which we did see. And this is all for for a marketer, right? And for for uh, the marketing team was the gold. Right? Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Now think about this. We can actually start putting marketing dollars behind our tees, behind our Henleys, because you know we know that we can sell them. Um, and we know, frankly, that it will cost us less to acquire you know, new customers trying to pitch those products versus a you know, $90 wrinkle-free button-down shirt. So did being able to sort of capitalize on the CAC landscape and finding sort of these new swath of customers or potentially, how did that uh, impact sort of sales during the summer? I feel like there there have been a lot of trajectories that companies faced. And so how how did that work out for you guys? Yeah, look, I think overall it worked out well because we, we managed through it. We still have the fundamental problem of people not buying our core. When I say people not buying... We're talking it went from 80% to 60%. So it's not as if it went to zero. Um, but that's still a lot of, of people that aren't buying button down shirts. Um, but we were able to, you know, we started to see over the summer basically online flat to, to 2019. Um, and 2019 for us was, it was a, obviously every year is a banner year when you're growing year over year, but 2019 was our, our largest year. So to be able to comp the same sales with, you know, half of the marketing spend. Um, was pretty special because again, I, I, you need to make a decision. Do how much marketing do you really going to? Are you really going to put in a pandemic when you know your core kind of ethos revolves around the freedoms to be able to actually get dressed um, and the desire and ability to go outside and do stuff. And so, talk to me about how the actual makeup of your stores changed. And so, was it? Did you focus more on distribution? <clears throat> you you mentioned earlier that you're a very metrics-driven retailer. And so, yes. how did your metrics change in terms of if you know thirty, forty percent of people are coming in now? So there were a couple of things that we did. I mean, and I'll, I'll go through like the the blocking and tackling. So the first thing we had to do is make sure that people felt comfortable in our stores. And so having the right protocol around taking temperatures, around cleanliness, around the use of of hand sanitizers, the use of glove and masks. That was that was important um, to not only do, but to make sure that that we market it is the wrong term, but communicate that to our existing customers, right? That it's it's a safe, it's as safe of a place as you could find. 
um, because of the protocols that we had in place. And we had a mask protocol that, you know, we thought you watch the news, you see what happens at the dollar store, like people getting shot because they're being asked to put masks on. Um, we never ran into that issue. Like not once, um, people, you know, this is a testament to our customers, very respectful. Um, you did get the occasional, no, I don't want to put a mask on, so I'll just go online. Um, but there were, you know, zero hate mail, um, you know, zero taking away my, my civil liberties by, by asking me to put a mask on. People were, were really respectful. And so that was important. So that was the first thing, making sure that we had the basic, you know, table stakes, play in, in, in action that people felt safe and, and comfortable going into our stores. Then what we did was we made a number of, of what I'll call tech-based changes to help improve the productivity of those stores. And one of those was coming up with video chat feature um, where, again, everyone wants the online experience to be like a store. It's funny. It was when Ecom first started – Everyone talked about just execution, number of clicks to to checkout, right? That was the only metric that you really were, were measured on, and it was the least amount of clicks possible. And now if you look at websites, a lot of them are very interactive, um, and a lot of them want to bring a little bit, as much as they can, frankly, of that store experience into the online platform. Because I can tell you from somebody that started online and that shops online and that goes to stores, like there's no experience like looking at a a helpful and engaged or associate and having that person talk you through the shopping experience and giving you the room if you need the room, but, you know, there to answer questions. And so we, we did this video chat feature. We always had a chat feature online, but the video chat feature that connected you right to the store, right to the store associates where they can, you know, take a picture of a product, you know, basically zap it over to you. You can buy it on there. You can video chat with them. They can walk you around the store. They can engage and that video chat feature was look. I'm not going to say it was it it you know turned an A to do it to a Z, but it was absolutely critical for two reasons. One, it it showed our our customers that look we're evolving and we're trying to make the online experience more interactive and more personal. That's always important. Um, but as important is it engaged our store associates who were looking at you know some twiddling their thumbs saying Jesus you know traffic is down. What can I do? And then you start looking at the engagement rates on the video chat and it's you know basically like everyone's there with their finger on a button. Video chat comes in, everyone wants to take it, right? Because they enjoy having interaction with, with the customer and, and being able to help. And yes, ringing up a sale, you know, because that was the other thing, making sure that stores get credits for, for sales that the store associates kind of transact with on video chat. Um, and we also turned our stores into, into fulfillment centers, right? So we have a lot of ship from store um, capabilities, which is really important because this is something, and I've said this before, but this is something that that big legacy retailers that move to online were good at day one. That operational, you know, ability to to ship from store, buy online, pick up in store, all that stuff, those were table stakes issues for them, and they had those day one. With Untucket and a lot, I'm going to say almost every D to C, and I hate making broad statements like that, but I'm almost certain almost all D to C companies were late to the game when it comes to ship from store, were late to the game when it comes to buy online, pick up in store. Because the fact is, if you're on Shopify, like you 
will have a very difficult time executing a very clean buy online pickup and store. Shopify doesn't allow you to split carts. So if you add two products, one that's in the store, one that's not in the store, like Shopify doesn't allow you to, to transact that in one transaction. So that's just as a massive kind of gape uh, gap for, for you to be able to, to execute a very seamless experience. So you work around it, you have tweaks. That's why we've got our, our CTO extraordinaire, Stephen Baker, who works with our e-com team to develop the, the tech and software to be able to do kind of those workarounds. So we did buy online, pick up in the store as well. Less, it's funny, not surprisingly, right? Less of a take-up rate than, than you, you might expect. Um, but again, a lot of our stores are in malls and, and a lot of people were, were avoiding malls. And then the last thing I'll mention, and then I'll, again, I'll give you time to speak and I'll breathe, um, was <laughs> we took a, a local delivery kind of approach to, to our stores where we partnered with the, this company that effectively through, through Postmates, you get your, your shirt kind of within the hour. And so it's, you can shop your store on our, our website. That was actually important for a lot of our customers to support their local store manager. And it's funny, I, I lived in Chicago for, for the last five years. I opened the store there. Our store manager has been there since, since we opened the store. Um, and people know, right? People come in, they ask for them, they shop with them. And so when the store's closed, um, we saw a lot of people asking about like, how, how do I support our local stores? And so, you know, shopping your local store was something that, that we put on the website. Um, so you can see all the inventory that's in the Chicago 900 North Michigan store or the Northbridge store, whichever store, um, and shop it. But then we added this kind of local delivery flair to it for, you know, a small added fee. You can get your shirt, you know, within the hour. And since we're in you know 85 different locations, 80 in the U S, um, we're able to cover a pretty large, we're not Amazon, right? But we can cover a pretty large swath of, of the country. So for those, those that latter part where you're talking about new fulfillment options, uh, I feel like you, and you see, you pretty much said this, but you're in the boat of a lot of other DTC players where they didn't have those capabilities. And then as soon as stores shut down, they scrambled to, to get them, you know, buy in line, pick up this or all those different things for, for the mm -hmm. programs that you did, were those, were those in your roadmap or would you consider them band-aids? Do you think that these are now long-term plans that are going to be part of your growth plan going forward? Like when you, when you add like a, a courier service, I imagine that that's not, wasn't necessarily something you had thought of before. So how, how does that? Well, it's funny. These were actually, which is a lot, this is why we were able to, to execute so quickly. These were all part of a roadmap. So coming out of last holiday season, we noticed, look, the last couple of days when nobody's buying online because they're not going to get their shirts mm -hmm. in time. You know, what would have we been able to do to, to better capitalize on stores and getting same day delivery, right? You see, like, just in terms of this, this kind of inverse relationship, as online, as you get closer to Christmas drops, naturally, stores pick up. And that makes sense, right? Last minute shoppers like myself, I'm a Christmas Eve shopper. Like, we all go to stores the last, you know, couple of days before the holiday. Um, and so it was trying to figure out how we can capitalize and how we can basically provide the right level of service to customers who aren't going to our stores, but they're going to online and hoping for kind of a miracle. And so that was in the, in the pipeline. It accelerated, right? We were thinking we'd get that for Q4. Um, and, you know, we had that out effectively end of Q2. So we accelerated a lot of, of these plans. The only thing that I think I didn't know about now, my team will probably kill me and say, we've been talking about this and kicking this around for months before the pandemic was the video chat feature. I'm not sure whether that was on our roadmap, but that was something that that was brought to me 
um, as an idea early on, right kind of as the pandemic started. Um, and, and we executed it on, you know, really quickly. It's the good thing about being small and nimble. We can, we can put a lot of these into play. So talk, I'm interested, you're, you mentioned the video app and sort of interfacing with your retail employees. Do you, do, do you have a commission system uh, with Untucket or how does that work? We, we don't. And it's funny, we talk about this every, say, six to, to 10 months in terms of, is this something we want to do? The reason we don't is the type of environment that we want to create, which is I'm going to go in the back room and I'm working with you. I can just, hey, hey, you mind taking, taking you know, Aaron and helping him finish his transaction? If you ever walk into, and I remember I went into store to be unnamed, but to return some jeans, right? And the woman that was helping me was, was terrific. She's going through the returns. But then, because I was the only one in the store, but as all of a sudden people start walking in the store and I, and I felt bad. Right. I actually apologize. I'm like, I'm really sorry that, that I'm, I'm locking you up here returning when, you know, her colleagues are swooping in and, and picking up sales and they are this company's stories on a, a commission. And so I just never want to create that type of environment. So we talked about, about collective commissions and we do have <clears throat> what I'll call sales driven compensation that's mm-hmm. not commissions. Things like if you hit a certain number of units per transaction, you get to ring up star sales. If your store exceeds budget, right, as a collective, you get to ring up some some additional kind of bonus dollars to, to store staff. But we've historically stayed away from a pure play commission intentionally. Did you shift that that other version, the sort of sales-driven targets, uh, given that people are shopping in stores so differently? Or was it just sort of staying afloat and figuring it out, and then you'll figure out the model, or if there's going to be a change to the model after that. Yeah, well, look, the the only thing that fundamentally changes or needs to change from the model is the target, right? Mm-hmm. So the the rest of the model still holds, um, but our budget in terms of what we had told stores, let's say, at the beginning of March, looked very different at the end of March. And so, you know, making sure that that the store associates understood we weren't going to hold them to a revenue bogey that we set in in December of 2019 now that the world has fundamentally changed and so we took away a lot of the the you know kind of high bar kind of bogeys that that we typically had and we just supplemented it with with something else. Mm-hmm. And so let's talk about this year. We're in 2021. Uh, you're, yep. you're a brand in growth mode. Sort of how has your calculus changed? You mentioned that things got accelerated but has the sort of e-commerce uh, store, I guess, complement, you know, mixture, has that shifted in your brain? And also, are, how or are you approaching forecasting given that, you know, we'll get out of this, but who knows when? Well, the, I'll take the second one first. So we actually got really good at at forecasting just through, through kind of human learning yeah. because we were wrong pretty much every month, you know, up until, up until recently. And so what because every month you hear, okay, vaccine, we'll get a million done before the, before the end of January. Like you, you hear a lot of, of, of plans and then you kind of budget to those plans and you always take a little bit of a haircut. And so we've just taken, you know, a far more conservative view of what 2021 is going to be. Like our, it's funny, I'm, I am an optimist just by, by birth, right? I'm always seeing the, 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 you know, the glass half full opportunity that things are going to get better. 
And so I think this, this tested me a bit, right? But, but one of the things that, that we looked at for 2021 is, look, realistically, we don't see things getting back to any semblance of normal before summer, right? So right off there, it's kind of how you think about the first half of the year and how you think about the second half of the year. Um, and so when we think about, okay, well, if, if half the year's not gone, because again, we're still, we're still growing, we're doing north of what we were doing in 2019 at least, um, so we're still growing, but if we're, if the growth mode is kind of tempered for half the year, maybe it's an opportunity really to, to rebalance the, the business. So we don't necessarily, it's funny, since we launched every year was like a mega growth mode, right? We want to grow 400%, 300%, you know, a hundred percent. And doing that is, it's stressful, right? It's not only stressful on, on the founders and, and then the management team, it's just stressful on the organization yeah. because everything moves at, at breakneck speed. Once a photo shoot's done, you know, the images have to be uploaded because you've got these budgets to hit and you, you miss five days of a month, like you're done. You're not hitting your numbers, right? Because your numbers just expect massive kind of growth all the time. And so the cathartic approach to 2021 is saying, look, if, if half the year is going to be tempered anyway, let's take it, let's slow, not slow growth down in for forever, but let's just take 2021 as a recoup year, right? It's the hangover year. We, we, we just gotten beaten up a little bit in 2020. Let's use 2021. Let's make sure that we've got all of our inventory flows, you know, locked in and that we're not sitting on more inventory than, than we wanted to because clearly coming out of 2020, you know, we're sitting on more inventory than, than we wanted to, largely because we took all the receipts from our factories, right? So that was one decision that we made early on in 2020 as we told our factories, look, a lot of them are, are fairly small businesses that we will honor everything that we, we ordered, right? If we can't cancel it without a cost, without any, without zero cost to the factory, you know, we'll honor those. So we took a lot more in than we were ever going to sell in 2021, especially for, for shirts. Like we, we sold through a ton of polos and, and tees, but on the button down shirt side. And so 2021 for us is look, let's get that inventory back in, in check. Let's keep our, our marketing costs down, right? The big, the big, I guess, business model for a lot of D2C companies is relies on pulling that marketing expense down. So it's, it's been a phenomenal year in terms of the efficacy of marketing, being able to un, you know, basically unplug all your marketing and then start over again with, with small marketing spend, see what's effective. All these questions when, when, again, when you're growing it like we were growing and there's a lot of brands out there that are growing really quickly, they start with online, then they'll add catalogs, then they'll add some radio, then they'll add some TV. And nobody really knows how they all interplay Nobody really knows if, if sales are going up, yeah. we just say we're happy. Yeah. Now, sales could be going up because TV's crushing it, but radio's, you know, suffocating. And you don't know that. You have some, you know, macro views, and, but it's really difficult to test channel specific efficacy um, with a large marketing dollars where you're spending a ton through a number of different channels. And mm -hmm. so that's the other thing, again. That's the optimist in me says, look, the the opportunity that we had to pull all of those marketing spends down and start layering them in again gave us a pretty unique perspective as to what our true organic growth is. If we were never to put another marketing dollar out there again, you know, how many new customers are we pulling in? And then what's the true 
customer acquisition costs in Facebook or Google or TV or radio, you know, and Facebook is, Facebook's going to be really, really interesting this year, I think, right? Mm-hmm. With, with the change to the iOS 14, yeah. the lack of, of ability for their algorithm to really deliver. I think it's, it's an unknown. So there's a lot of companies that when you have an unknown that you've relied on, and a lot of companies have relied almost exclusively on, on Facebook growth, um, it's got to be a little bit, uh, a little bit scary. When you were doing that layering on channel by channel, were there any surprises? And did TV over-index more than you thought? Or just sort of what did you learn when you were able to sort of look at it on a very sort of more microscopic level? So we, we learned a lot of what we thought we knew but couldn't prove we learned, right? So things like the, the, the interplay between TV and catalog, you know, that was something that was, was special. We learned that view-throughs on Facebook really do need to be discounted, right? And, and you can't take a view through. Again, this is for us. Depends where you are in your growth trajectory. But view through where we are 10 years later means a, a much different number in, in, in actuality. Um, and, and frankly, we learned that, that radio crushes it, mm. right? We have this unique value proposition to be able to sell our brand over the airwaves. You don't have to see the shirt. You don't even have to, you know, to be able to touch or feel it. When we start off with, we started Untucked because we couldn't find shirts that look good Untucked. Like people get what we mean and this functionality kind of messaging that comes through um, where just, we just benefit from it. So radio is, is a very cheap form of advertising. Not all radio, right? We're on Howard Stern that I would call that far from, from inexpensive. <laughs> But he also happens to be one of the the best sponsors out there. All right, Aaron, this has been a really great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and send this podcast over to a friend who you know would enjoy it. See you next week. 